Welcome to Changeable. This is episode number 210, Spiritual Constipation with Stephen Ladd. You're tuned in to Changeable with Dr. Amy Johnson. Changeable podcast is all about breaking habits, ending anxiety, and the ironic way change really works. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey there, welcome back to Changeable. So in this episode, I'm talking with Stephen Ladd, who is a new author. He's the author of a book called Spiritual Constipation. It's a really good book, a really unique book, um, full of just really light and funny stories and metaphors. And it's not a light and funny book, but it is. So, so this book really goes through like the gamut of what you might be exploring if you are uh, on this on this path. If you like these kinds of conversations we talk about here on Changeable, uh, you will hear all kinds of things that you're maybe somewhat familiar with or that you're familiar with but don't yet know all that much about. I mean, it kind of walks people through how life happens from the inside out in the beginning to uh, non-dualism and and what's real and what's belief versus truth and some pretty big things toward the end. But it does it in sort of a sneaky way. So it's not, and I love how Stephen described this in, in our episode, which you'll hear, it's not like a super deep dive into any particular thing. It's more like a casual float down a lazy river on a tube where all kinds of things are showing up in the landscape around you and you can just naturally be drawn into whatever you're naturally drawn into. And uh, I think Stephen's humor and the examples he uses and the stories he tells really show that. So you'll get a feel for it as you listen to this episode. We, uh, We looked kind of more toward the, I don't even know if this is fair to say it's made up, but the... I don't know, deeper, more advanced for for me anyway. In in my path on this, the deeper, more advanced kind of topics, which does not mean they're actually deeper or more advanced at all. That's completely made up. Um, But we talked about things like how do you how do you know if something is truth versus a belief? We talked about. the difference between oneness versus connectedness, which is something he talks about in his book and, and these stepping stones, what maybe how, how we move from a sense of oneness or the concept of oneness to a more embodied experience of it. Uh, Stephen talked about his work with young golfers, which I loved and just the, the way thought plays into our performance and that we've really touched on a lot of things like the book does. And I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. So I'm going to share the links where you can learn more about Stephen and his work um, and also where you can grab the book. And I really recommend it. Enjoy this conversation with Stephen Ladd. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for coming on Changeable. Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I look forward to chatting and hopefully sharing something of value with uh, your listeners and your students. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure uh, it's going to be a good conversation. So I just read your book, Spiritual Constipation. Uh, so many great metaphors, mostly about poop, but that's, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> you worked it in the whole way through, but no, it's a really good book. And so we can, um, I'll link to it, obviously, but we can talk about just some stuff that kind of struck me as I was reading and just just kind of take this wherever it goes. Um, 
So maybe just to set it up for people, could you say a little bit about your journey with all of this, what you do, like how you wrote in the book about how you, you, I think like probably many listeners uh, and myself as well, became a seeker pretty young, pretty early on and how that has sort of evolved. Maybe say a little bit about how that's gone. Sure. As I mentioned in the book, I was considered a very sensitive kid, primarily towards um, animals and uh, almost obsessively so. And somehow or another, that led me to relatively at a young age, 12, 13 years old, looking into Eastern philosophy, because I realized that in other parts of the world, you know, animals were revered, if not treated, at least treated more compassionately. That then kind of guided me into my studies as uh, an undergraduate. I studied psychology, philosophy, and religion with full intentions of going to law school. And then I, at the last minute, made the pivot to a much less practical uh, train of, of education in comparative religions, only to find once I got into that, even though I was at what would be considered a hippie school out in San Francisco, it got quite stuffy. So I ended up doing a stint teaching English through Southeast Asia and then came back to the States. And that's when I really dove into the mind-body wellness scene that was just kind of emerging in, in, in the late 90s and uh, found some mentors in the holistic fitness, uh, meditation, uh, neuro-linguistic programming fields. Uh, my wife and I opened up a facility called The Human Form, which does functional strength training, nutritional counseling. And then I do um, what I guess you could call a non-dual focused life coaching, very much pointing in the same direction that you do towards um, you know, who and what we are, our experience of life moment to moment, and the freedom that's available to us on the other side of that. And in the last five years or so, I've added in some more somatic practices. So I, I practice Reiki and uh, a technique called Be Activated, which helps to, both of them help to calm down the central nervous system. And as you, as you are well aware, as we calm down and settle physiologically and psychologically, it's a ripe environment for insights to emerge. Yeah. So, um, so as you got into this, so you were sensitive, you hated how that people, how animals were treated. It opened you up to kind of this whole other side to things that you, you know, that we weren't getting here in the Midwest at that time, maybe. Um, was it, was it mostly driven by curiosity because or or was it driven and or was it like were you suffering and were you finding relief and peace in what you were studying so I'm kind of curious yeah about like what was behind that for you personally to keep looking at all of this well I think looking back now because curiosity uh, you know for me now compassionate curiosity really is is a focus of mine um, because I think curiosity is is the driver the driver for our evolution. And I didn't, of course, know that. I had no idea who I was back, you know, as a young wee lad. But I did, um, there was a curiosity and there was a, a sense of wanting to end suffering, uh, both for myself and others. And I had a very, very lovely childhood. There was no objective reason for me to feel as though um, I was suffering in any meaningful way. But I, I knew that there was something more that I was missing. And I went through the evolution of thinking something was wrong with me, 
and then something was wrong with others. And I went on the bandwagon of being, you know, um, of prophesizing and, and, uh, about how things should be. And I went through all that, which I think a lot of young people need to do that. And some older people too. (laughs) And I, I came finally to settle down a bit with, you know, with, with it all. And with my studies, especially in Buddhism, um, with acceptance and allowing and recognizing that with acceptance and allowing one can then, uh, more actively bring about change instead of the resisting and instead of the fighting. Yeah. I think that's such a tough thing to wrap our heads around. Maybe it's impossible to wrap our heads around really because it's paradox, you know, but that thing of when people will say, well, no, I want to be an activist and these things are wrong and there's so much that's wrong right now. And of course, it feels horrible to hear like, oh, we'll just accept it. (laughs) And maybe that's how it'll change. And it, you know, so, yeah, I mean, how how do like, does, has that just been sort of a process where you just kind of can feel your way into the, to that paradox? Yes, indeed. I, I was a very, very active, I was politically very active in the animal rights movement. I started a PETA um, branch in my, in, at my college, and I was very active in that until I started to see um, that uh, you see a lot of very horrible things in that world. And you start, it's easy to start disliking human beings. And as soon as something like that starts to happen, it seems that it, it colors, you know, um, the good work you're willing and able to do and being able to be persuasive and know things like NLP and conversational hypnosis and being able to manipulate others under the guise of, you know, we're all in this together, it started to not quite feel right to me. And so I broke away from that. And although I am a bit much bigger on acceptance now than taking massive action toward things, what I've noticed is overall the evolution and change is more is more deeply meaningful and things do move forward uh, at least from from my perspective from that position yeah i think it's such a big thing to notice how we're feeling when we're doing things it's so easy to say this is wrong and then just go full on into it and then like you said realize at some point wow well i might be i might be protecting some animals here but i hate all these people <laughs> you know and like we don't if we just have blinders on and it's just led by thought, we're going to miss that. But to, to feel into the nuances of what feels expansive and what we're doing and what feels restrictive and where that's kind of guiding us, um, I think is so, yeah, it's just so huge. Yeah. There, and there is, and that's one thing I attempted to do in my book is to broach some of these relatively deep topics. Um, and then, what does it mean in theory and what does it mean in practice? Because I've always loved the saying, the only difference between theory and practice is that in theory, there's no difference. So how, you know, how do we look at non-duality? How do we look at the fact that we are all one? And when we do know that from more than an intellectual perspective, it doesn't mean that we don't need institutions to put to separate some individuals from the rest of society for their own good and for the good of others. It doesn't mean um, that anything and everything is allowed. It simply 
means that there is a different foundational perspective from which we may incarcerate some individuals. Instead of punishment, uh, it'd be a different foundation still based in love and still meaning there are things that need to be done and some rules that need to be to be in place. But everything can be different, even if it looks outwardly the same. Yeah. One thing that I think um, you did really great in your book is kind of help give that sense that it's not an either or that that like you're saying that we can we can look in this direction of true oneness and we can live in a world where it looks like there are opposites and and there's just a ton of paradox and in fact that's where it gets fun like that's where it, that it's beautiful that we can straddle both of that both of those and live in both of those in a sense it's not a great way of saying it but I think that can be tough. And I think even probably for those of us who have been around this for a long time, man, if it doesn't look like there's a preference, like formless is better than form somehow, or, you know, that it's more, I don't know, it's just somehow higher than form. And so, yeah, to start to really embrace both of those is pretty big. Yes, I Early in my studies of Buddhism, I, I, I attempted for an entire year to have no preferences. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it, was, it was worthwhile, but only because I realized how inhuman it felt. Mm. And that there, I've come to believe, at least as of today, that there, there's absolutely nothing wrong with preferences as a human being. It's part of what we do. It's, um, it's simply, I mean, I prefer chocolate ice cream over vanilla. And if I go to the ice cream parlor and they're, and they're all out of chocolate, you know, I don't, I don't lose it. You know, I don't have to have all of my preferences met in the moment, every moment. Yeah. So to have those preferences and yet recognize, you know, um, that, you know, they're in the world of form and that's part of the game and it's a great game. I mean, this, as far as I know, in this human incarnation, it, it, it's a beautiful game to be played you know, in, in all of its ups and all of its downs. But there is, I think, a at least for, for me, a, a comfort in, in hearing in the silence the, the, the melody of the formless that is always playing. Yeah. Yeah. Preferences. It's so funny because there's so much stuff. There's so much in, in the world of form, there's so much stuff. And it just makes sense, doesn't it? That there would be something built into this intelligence that would guide us towards some and away from all. Like they just feel like the most practical thing in the world. Um, but yeah, we get so attached to them and, and then our mind says, oh, I'm going to lose my shit if they don't have chocolate. <laughs> and it's like, well, no, it doesn't have to be like that. So right. just having that, that loose way of being with things is, is so different and so obvious once you sort of see it. But it's really funny how we, how we get so attached, it seems, to these ideas. And then through time, we have to sort of see things in a new way and our attachment lightens. I see this, I work with a lot of athletes and approach it from this sort of non-dual um, stance, yeah. uh, especially junior golfers. And I've had, after working with some of these kids, um, they'll say, so are, are you trying to say I shouldn't care if I win 
or if I lose and I, I have to be very clear, no, no, you should want to win. That, I mean, that's, that's, you love the game. It's, it's what's fun about a game is that you are competing. But what can happen is I've had coaches ask me to figure out, you know, some sort of technique to make these, their, their players not so nervous before a tournament. And so we, they're looking for more technique. They've already have 15 or 20 techniques. You know, these coaches are relatively advanced. So they do breathing and they do cold plunges and they do heart math. They do all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And I, when I tell them their toolbox seems relatively full already and that what might be interesting is look at the real reason why these kids are anxious. And then I suggest that it is because they think there's something real at risk. And the only thing real at risk is who and what they are, which is, of course, untouchable. And once they recognize that they're, they're not only okay, but they are untouchable, then they can choose to play a sport or a game or compete for a scholarship, doesn't matter what it is, and really, really want to win. Yeah. But they're not confused that winning or playing well or performing well means anything about who or what they are. And I think that, of course, the flip side of that, which is so nice, is that once you recognize that, you're often more, uh, more willing and able to play all out because you realize that there's nothing real, even if it's a state championship, even if it's a scholarship to, to the Ivy League schools, it's not real in the sense of affecting who and what you are. And so it really does open up the floodgates for people to more often perform at their highest level because they're not weighting down that performance with, you know, the misunderstanding that it has anything to do with their soul value. Yeah. So kind of a huge question that's unanswerable, but, um, but I'll ask it anyway, like how, how does that shift start to happen? <laughs> no, like it's a it's a terrible question, terrible how question. But and and it's what we do all the time when we support people, right? Is we kind of mm -hmm. point in a direction, and they're like, who knows how it happens, really? But I don't know. Maybe we can explore that a little bit, like especially with someone who's a young person that like maybe not especially so, but like their whole world is this physical and especially teenagers, I think like everything's about me. Like that's the, that's the height of ego identification. How, what do you see, I guess, as kind of like the, a conversation that might really start to shift that focus, or maybe it's not a conversation, anything that kind of starts to shift that focus to show them, Hey, there's something behind all this. I think they certainly can be conversations. And uh, as far as parents and, and coaches and adults working with the younger folks, I think it's more of uh, example. And it's more of how we can relate to these people and to each other, of course, from a place of that recognition. And um, so I often suggest with the coaches and their parents that they react exactly the same way if their child or player performs exceptionally well or exceptionally poorly. And that is something along the lines of, and I believe it was Garrett Kramer who mentioned this one, I stole it from him, I think, is I love to watch you play or I love to watch you perform. You know, I love what you do. 
And that sends, I believe, a message on many levels that it's not about, you know, the performance. Again, that there is something untouchable about all people. And we will take action and sometimes we'll be successful and sometimes we won't. And there's, I think, a great lesson in failing. And I think um, the idea that there's no such thing as failure and all, all these other sayings and memes, I understand the intent, or at least I think I understand the intent, but I don't think it's, I don't think it is real in, in our relative reality. Of course, there's failure. If we're trying to do one thing and we only get it done halfway, we, fa- we have failed to do that. Um, and that's okay. But I think what's really interesting is then to accept that and to recognize what it means and more importantly, what it does not mean. So it's, I think it's oftentimes about as gently as one can have conversations and or by example, put forth in front of ourselves and, and others what it doesn't mean so we can examine those things. And then, of course, as you know, insights, once you have an insight, it's yours. You own that. And you may forget it, okay, but, but it's yours as opposed to, to being told, as opposed to learning from somebody, all valuable, but certainly not the same. So there is that, there is that space. And I, obviously, I know you know what I'm talking about and your coaches do as well, where you enter into that space with, with another or with yourself and just hang out there and, re- and, and wait for the insights because, you know, the sight from within the wisdom that we all have and have simply forgotten, have simply been covered up with conditioning and beliefs and all the, and all the other somewhat necessary, you know, elements of, of everyday relative reality, but, you know, settling down is really, I think, the key. Yeah. Yeah. And it and it's only hard to do that because like you said, we've been so conditioned that speeding up gets us where we want. And and even bigger than that, when it feels like when we're living in in that land of opposites, when we're living in our mind, that's all that's all that that land know like that's the rule that it operates by is more 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 so of course the mind is always just going to say more 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 but to see that there's something beyond that is is pretty awesome yeah well said and much more concise than than my rambling no it's um <laughs> it's so crazy though like in a way if you think about you know, we've like, there's so many classic metaphors around this, but it's like, yeah, we've been sitting in this theater forever staring at a movie. And then finally someone's like, Hey, you know, you're in a theater, right? Like, look around, (laughs) look around that screen, go outside, like keep backing up and seeing. And I mean, I just think that's so huge in what we're talking about and the the hows and wins and where's, you know, that like people wake up and kind of like leave the theater and are like, holy crap, this has been here the whole time. Like that's all going to, that's all fun story, but who knows? It just happens however it happens. But it's just so fascinating that, that it does happen for people. It does. And I, I, I'm a huge fan of movies and uh, in my personal life and in my coaching. Um, services. I love the metaphor of the movies in so many ways. Um, you know, traditional psychology, which I'm a fan, I've done hundreds of hours myself, often will, you know, poke the bear, if you will, 
And I think it was Michael Neal who said, instead of poking the bear, perhaps you should poke the screen. And because once, once you get a sense of it, once you get a sense of the Wizard of Oz, you know, behind the screen, uh, things begin to change. And that I think is really the key is just once it starts. Yeah. Once it starts. And, and of course, you can also get, get up, get out of the theater because they're all multiplexes now, certainly in our heads. We can always go to another theater as well. Yeah. And once you realize there's, there are lots of movies currently playing, we can go to any of them that, we have a preference for in the moment or and or seems useful in the moment and then we can also leave the theater the, the multiplex completely yeah and step outside yeah yeah that's crazy so um okay so let's talk a little bit about connectedness versus oneness and also belief versus truth so you write about both of these in in the book um you you said something like kind of seeing this unity and oneness. I forget how you said it exactly, but um, it's like important. <laughs> it's like big, <laughs> right? Like if, like if we can start to have this sense of the not, well, you can say it better than I can, not the connectedness of all things, but the true oneness, things cannot not change from that realization. So yeah, maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Yes, I think there is, there's beauty in we are all connected. And there, not only is it beautiful, but it also often leads to, you know, I would say enhanced behavior amongst each other because we are dependent upon one another and our actions affect others. And it, that's a beautiful place to, to be. Um, I, I think it can evolve from there into uh, because we are all one is is not the same to me as we are all connected you know if there are if there are no others and this is for what reason we all appear like this and we appear as others you know as anyone's guests plenty of people will tell you why but um and i, I have my favorites but i realize that they're beliefs and, and they're made up into why it is that we all appear other than one and Again, I think it's to be experienced. So if indeed, I like to just, I make very few homework assignments, but if I ever do, it's something along the lines of a suggestion of what if you were just to spend an hour or two fully embracing the fact as truth that we are all one and that this appearance of illusion is simply that an illusion for whatever reason, and you were to go to Whole Foods and go shopping. And we can talk theoretically about what that might be like, but actually experiencing it, going out and practicing, what would it mean? How would it, how might it change how you felt? How might it change how you interacted uh, with the person cutting you off with their cart, with the you know, the checkout person who was, you know, too slow. I mean, what, how would it change? And then simply to see if it felt true and if it felt good. I mean, cause there is, there is truth in those kinds of feelings to be honored. And uh, people may see um, you and I both, we, we point in a certain direction um, over and over again, but 
we don't necessarily have an attachment to anybody seeing what we see. You know, it's like, hey, let's, my, my book is really just an invitation to, for a mutual exploration, you know, into these, uh, into these areas, and then examples that might be appropriate stories from life. And so if we look in a certain direction, that's different than we're used to looking. And then I, I, as a coach, I don't have any attachment to what my client sees. Looking is, is all that it takes. And they may see something, they may see truth as well. And it may look a bit different to them than to me. And I don't see that as a problem. I see it more as a opportunity. Tell me what you're seeing when you see truth over in that direction. And so I really think that that's the key is to keep coming back and just, and just testing it out. And I've, I've been very, very serious at many times in my life with my studies, very in my academic studies and my spiritual studies. And, and I have come to a point now where I just feel like it doesn't necessarily have to be that hard. If it's hard, I'm willing to do the work. That is for sure. But my book what I tried to do, my intention was that instead of taking a deep dive off a high cliff into these topics, which some of them are deep, um, it more of a on a tube down a lazy river, floating down, you know, with a cocktail in your hand and you look up at the cliff and you see, oh, look, there's love and there's forgiveness and there is non-duality in a relaxed way. How does it look when we're not straining and seeking, but instead we're simply turning, turning toward something and looking and seeing what is there with, with an open heart. I think it says a lot about, uh, about truth, maybe our design, whatever that we, that we can just look at these things and just glance over at them in a casual way and things will really start to open up. It's like you said before, it's like all it takes is kind of being pointed in that direction and a little bit of curiosity. And it's like, it keeps unraveling, which is really cool. It's like, if we were, um, if this was hard to see, if it wasn't true, I would say, if it wasn't our nature, it wouldn't, wouldn't be so natural. And it, w- and it doesn't seem like it would have all that momentum behind it that we could just kind of be pointed in a direction. So I don't know. I just think that's kind of cool. Um, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, 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 well said. And I, I have a lot, most of my clients that I see who are more adult clients, they're very high achievers and they have worked really hard and put a lot of effort into achieving a lot of, a lot of great building companies and building fam, a lot of great stuff. And I, what they end up finding is that that type of um, drive doesn't always cross over into every context. And they've been so successful that they try to go after their spiritual you know, quest uh, whether they call it that or not, being happier, you know, knowing what they, who they are, they go after that with the same determination that they're going to bulldoze over it. And so there really is a shift to doing far less than they've ever done before and, and, and to allowing. And I think that is really, to your point, um, the less you do, the, uh, the seeking eyes are very strained and tired. And as you can um, relax them, you know, your vision, if you, when you're going 80 miles an hour and the freeway, everything's a blur. Yeah. And then you take your foot off the gas pedal just a little bit down to 55. And all of a sudden you see things, uh, 
beautiful things that were before just blurs. And then when you see things, as you know, when you see things differently, different things make sense. And therefore you do think you do different things and it becomes effortless. And when a client, I'm sure you get this too, say, oh, now I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't, I didn't have to try so hard to change. It just started to happen. Yeah. Which is such, it's just such good news for us. And like, even the connectedness thing, you know, like that feels amazing at a certain, so many things like this, uh, free will. Like I used to feel like a victim to everything to see, oh no, I have some free will. Well, that felt amazing at a point, all kinds of things did. And then they sort of hit a wall and then we're kind of like, we talked about this earlier, just the big picture stuff too, whether it's not dualism and three principles, all of that, it's like, things are super helpful and perfect for us when they are. And then it's just like, okay, I think it's time to look over this fence and see what's out over there. And, and I think it's easy for, again, for a mind when we're identified with their thinking, it's very easy to judge the heck out of that and to compare ourselves and all of that and to want to skip ahead to like, well, what's the last fence? I'm definitely guilty of that. Like, what's the biggest leverage fence here for me to look over? And it just doesn't seem to work that way. It seems like we have to just get in that tube and let the river take us in the way it wants to take us. I think so. Um, that has been my experience. And, and one of the things I've, I've always loved about, say, Buddhism is that it is meant to be practical. And that, you know, you're in, you're in the boat to cross the river and then you come to a mountain and you chuck the boat. You don't carry it up, up the mountaintop because you need different tools. And of course, that just makes sense. It'd be ridiculous to carry the, the boat up the river. <laughs> um, and so the ability to recognize when, when evolution is happening and letting go of some things that were quite useful at one point and not feeling as though it was a waste because of course you wouldn't have gotten to the other side of the river to the mountain without the boat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Say a little bit about, as I loved this conversation in the book um, about the difference between like a belief and the truth. How do we know? Because I think this is another place our mind can get so, and people will uh, understandably like justifiably kind of say, well, aren't, are, isn't what you're pointing toward, isn't that just your belief? Like what's true here? So how do we know what's true? Sure. And I, of course, uh, really reached in that chapter to use a metaphor and a story from my life about Japanese monster movies, um, <laughs> asking for the reader's forgiveness on that reach. But the idea that um, belief and truth, and I, I think for me, the bottom line is that Beliefs are, there are some, there are some telltale signs about belief. And one is that they need to be protected mm. and defended because um, to me, truth it never needs to be defended. It just, it, it is. And when you see it, 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 it can evolve and your understanding, your depth of truth can certainly evolve. But, but for me, my belief, and I do have plenty of beliefs. And I have uh, beliefs in moments that I think things are right and wrong. When, I'm, when I am most settled, though, I certainly don't believe my beliefs. I recognize what they are and that they are 
there for many reasons, some of which are probably useful and some may not be. And those, you know, are worthy, I think, of examination over time. But to me, um, that that's a telltale sign that, that I know. And then I always, I think I said in the book something along the lines of, you know, the quickest way to to deny a truth is to believe it. Because yeah. once once you believe a truth, you've you've taken it out of that realm of truth. And now we're in that. Um, the Venn diagram where they truth and belief meet, which is the BS zone. It's right. so funny. That's an, a, a, another example of something that I remember a couple years ago hearing someone say that no thought is the truth. Mm. And that was like huge, like blew my, what? <laughs> no thought is the truth. I mean, it really, I really sat with that one for a long time. And then I would start saying it and then everyone I came, most people that I would say that to would have a similar pause. Like, what do you mean? No thought is a truth. And it's just so fun because now as you say that, it's like, well, duh, because it's a thought. <laughs> how can a thought be a truth? Like, how can a map be a destination? How can it, you know, like, of course, but but nothing had to be worked through there, you know? It's just so, I don't know. I just love that to look back and see how these little things kind of just blow our mind open. And then they look to be so completely obvious. And, and I, th- I think that is, that is really, um, that's a great point. Um, that these, the truth is beyond the mind. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, you know, the Zen Cohen was you know generally meant to be an intellectual exercise to have the mind implode upon itself because it can't answer what is the sound of one hand clapping you know it's not an intellectual exercise and so that's that their sneaky way of getting the mind to collapse in on itself i'm not sure it has to be you know 15 years of sitting facing a wall for everyone thinking about that that exercise in order to uh, recognize that it can be uh, simpler and easier than that, but uh, a general recognition that to know the truth is something that is is beyond the mind, you know. And so the questions like, "What did you know to be true before the world told you it was so?" Those kinds of questions, of course, the mind is quite appalled at a question like that, um, because the world tells you it's so includes things like learning which are beautiful. I love, I love to learn new things. Um, but to mistake that for the truth, something that has been learned, you know, instead of simply seen, experienced, I think is, is, uh, is a thin, tricky, beautiful line to ride and crisscross back and forth over it and see, see what we see. Yeah. I guess for me, part of uh, words aren't going to do this justice, but it just sort of feels like, yeah, there's this dream world in a sense um, where I love how you said, I have a lot of beliefs. I just don't often believe my beliefs or <laughs> try not to too much anyway. It's just like preferences, right? I mean, the, any concept we want to put in there, it all falls in that same camp. So it's like, there's this... Uh, this is not going to sound right, but it's like there's this formless, this world of truth that we, we, because we are a thought too, will never ever touch and never ever can. But we can sort of know that it's there or feel it or sense that it's there. And then, and then we get to live in this dream full of all these polarities and preferences and beliefs, but also knowing that there's that 
other world there, it like makes this world different, you know, like, and, and just what you said about beliefs, you know, cause I, I just think a lot of people probably kind of have these ideas of what, it, what we're supposed to be like if we're spiritual and like, oh, well, Stephen probably doesn't have any, you know, real beliefs about things anymore. Or like he never takes his preferences seriously. And just like you said, to see that that it's so, it feels so inhumane to not do that. And yet we can still know the bigger, bigger sense of things. Yes. I'm sure you get this too. Clients asking, well, do you ever forget? Yeah. Do you I'm ever like, get mad? Yeah, yeah. Daily. <laughs> no, <never>. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> daily forget. I, you know, just yesterday I was stuck in traffic and I, you know, I, I was upset. I was going to be late and I, I mistakenly thought the traffic was causing me to be upset, you know, and then I realized, oh, I am the traffic. I mean, I'm part of the traffic. And of course, because I was lost in thought like that, in that misunderstanding, I missed a, a turn I could have taken, a shortcut I could have taken and been there on time. So it just, it doesn't serve me well, but I, I remember and forget and remember and forget constantly. Um, I, I'd say a little, I, I forget a little less often and maybe remember a little bit quicker than, you know, a year or two ago. But, but that is just that remembering, forgetting uh, remembering forgetting is just, I think, uh, probably going to be the way it goes until we move on, you know? Yeah. I mean, the fact that it is, uh, is just what happens kind of leads us to think that it can't be wrong. It can't be a problem that we're supposed to have learned how to overcome. Like, I don't know. I think anything that just seems to happen a lot is probably has some intelligence behind it that maybe we just can't see from our limited perspective. Yeah, well said. I, you know, I, one of my teachers used to, meditation teachers used to always say, you know, you can, in an hour of meditation, you can be upset that you forgot and your mind drifted 32 times, or you can be grateful that you remembered 33 times, you know? And so that, you know, that being reborn, you know, in each new moment um, of remembering can be, can be celebrated. Yeah. And in the end, it it doesn't really matter whether you're upset or grateful. Like, do you know, like those are just experiences that are happening then. Neither of them mean anything. Yeah. Indeed. So cool. There's, there's, I just, uh, I, I can really feel your, um, like you said, that compassionate curiosity and just, just kind of geekiness about this stuff, which I share in your book. <laughs> so I'd love that. I appreciate that so much. He's like, yeah, he's geeking out on like how cool this is too. I get it in this conversation and me too. And I just think it's, it's obviously not for everyone, but for the people that want to talk about this stuff and read our stuff and listen, Hey, like I can't think of a better, you know, more fun, interesting topics to, to spend our time on. So I appreciate that. And yeah, and then relaxing into it, you know, I mean, I certainly have gotten a lot out of, I would call the more serious teachers, uh, without a doubt. And I've gotten a lot out of um, teachers from different cultures and, you know, for sure. Um, however, I, I tended more recently to be connecting with people a bit more from my culture and a bit on the more rela- that laugh more, you know, that, that uh, have a more relaxed attitude toward um, our spiritual evolution, if you will. And that is really what I was trying to share in my book is 
uh, sort of a relaxed feel. And so one of my mentors, Rob Bell, if you're familiar with Rob, he's fantastic. He asked me early on in my writing of the book, if, if this book was a, a piece of music, you know, what would you want the listener's experience to be? You know, what genre is it, of course? And then what's the melody, the tempo, the pacing? You know, is there an arc to the story? Is there a crescendo? And so I really, I really, um, in the second and third rewrites, really paid attention to that and tr- uh, did my best to make it a, an easy listening, you know, sort of um, <laughs> genre. And that we can, you know, we can ease our way into these things. And you can, and you can go as, you know, any, everyone will go as deep as they're able to go in the moment with any sort of material. And I, you can't control it any more than that. But I, I certainly wa- was looking to put forth, um, you know, my, my flavor on, on these sort of topics in a, in a relaxed manner and invite those who might be um, either tired of working so hard or just intimidated and never, never getting into it because they assumed that it was, it had to be hard work. You know, it was always about shadow work and all, in all those things. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was my, that was my intention and in sharing, uh, what really I wrote, I wrote the book for myself, of course, you know, first and foremost as my own exploration, but then I was, um, prompted by, by folks to, to share it. And so that's, that was my intention. Well, I think you did it really well. I think uh, I think people are going to love it. So I'm going to I'm going to share uh, the links and everything. But again, I really recommend people check it out. Spiritual constipation. It's so good. It 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 just it it like you said. It kind of touches on so many things with a bit of depth, but but just with lightness and humor and funny examples and. Um, things that I think just expand our mind a bit more. You know, I don't think we should downplay the humor part and the different examples because really, like, those go a really long way of expanding our mind beyond what we think we're looking for here. So it's a great, great book um, and great conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Amy. My pleasure. The Change Coach Home Study Course provides a foundation that allows you to help people become free of habits, anxiety, and all forms of suffering. The course focuses on your own understanding of what's true of all people and how change works. You experience your own personal transformation so that you can guide others with conviction and clarity. As your grounding deepens, you'll learn the ins and outs of having conversations that allow people to see their own health. You'll get to watch several full coaching sessions that will be debriefed and discussed. You'll get lessons on issues that commonly arise in working with others. You'll hear from seasoned practitioners such as Mavis Karn and Mark Howard. And you'll get my latest business building workshop. And that's just some of what you get. There's actually much more in this amazing course. The Change Coach Home Study course is perfect for you if you're already working with people either as a coach therapist or maybe in HR, education or business, or if you've never worked with people in this way, but you're ready to expand your grounding and see if coaching is for you. The newly expanded and improved Change Coach Home Study course is normally $2,500, but is currently discounted to just $1,575 for members of Student Access Plus. Best of all, if you decide to go through the six-month live Change Coach certification course with me in 2023, what you pay toward the home study course goes toward your tuition. Check out the full details, payment plans, and everything about this in-depth and new and improved training course 
at dramiejohnson.com slash changecoachtraining, the home study course. And the link is in the show notes.